Participate in Weaver's Pulse study on COVID-19's financial impact on manufacturing and distribution companies. Visit the link in this episode's description. Welcome to Weaver Beyond the Numbers, where Weaver professionals talk about business and accounting. We'll explore a wide variety of topics from tax law and accounting standard changes to managing cyber, fraud, financial, and operational risks. What do these issues mean to your business? Join us as we go beyond the numbers to find out. Welcome to Weaver Beyond the Numbers. I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk. Today, we're providing some insight for manufacturing industry leaders who are seeking guidance on handling the unprecedented COVID-19 pandemic. I'm joined today by Jody Allred, partner in charge for large marketing, manufacturing and distribution and technology services, and Curtis Dixon, partner in tax services. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you, Shelby. Thanks for having us, Shelby. So two organizations, the Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation and the National Association of Manufacturers recently surveyed the industry, kind of seeking insight on their coronavirus concerns and practical solutions, really, for mitigating the effect. So I want to unpack these a little bit and try to understand the meat of what's being discussed here. So first, the MAPI survey was uh, first conducted on January 28th when the virus was largely contained in China. And then they followed up with a March 9th survey in response to kind of this rapidly changing situation in the U.S. So, Jody, you studied the report. So tell me, how did those responses change in roughly a month's time? Yeah, I think the most significant change outlined in in MAPI's report around their survey really focused in on the U.S. manufacturers or manufacturing businesses that operate globally, uh, 62% in, in the March survey said they were very or moderately concerned about the impact of their business or their glo- and their global operations. If you look back at the survey that was done at the end of January, that same group of people said, responded only 37% of them, percent of them were concerned with the impact on their operations. So in a very short amount of time, that perspective in the U.S. changed as more information was known. And I think from March 9th through through today on the 26th, uh, we're really looking at a pretty significant change since then as well, with a focus not only on supply chain issues, manufacturers looking forward at at demand locally in the U.S. and how that's degrading uh, has become a much more significant problem today than than what was in the March 9th survey focused mostly on supply chain issues. Well, you're right. I mean, March 9th was relatively early in the the U.S. response and, and certainly the data, you know, you're right, it has changed now more than ever that the shelter-in-place orders have gone into effect. And yes, supply chain is rapidly the, the, uh, the I guess, the tipping point or the, the strain that, that we're talking about. So 
Within those, let's talk about some of the manufacturing industry's biggest concerns at the at the outset of the outbreak, and then more recently as the the pandemic has has gathered steam, so to speak. You said that supply chain uh, has really come into focus. Uh, unpack that a little bit and explain why that has become such uh, such an issue. Well, I think the March 9th survey showed that a lot of manufacturers were really concerned about their ability to obtain the goods that they need to complete their manufacturing process. And China plays such a significant role in global product manufacturing uh, that with the impact of the virus centralized in China at the time uh, and the shutdowns that were necessitated by the, the epidemic at that time were limiting manufacturers' ability to, to obtain the products they needed to as components, either components into their own process or, or just contract manufacturing that, that they had uh, as capacity in that country. I think what you see today is a, is a shift, and, and you could even start to see evidence of it in the March 9th survey, is that much of that China manufacturing capacity has come back online and we're starting to see, well, not just starting at this point, but we're, we are seeing in the midst of living through supply chain interruptions through Europe, through India. So there's that supply chain concern has shifted not only from China, but to other aspects globally. But then you couple that supply chain with the shutdowns at home shelter-in-place policies that, that are in place in a number of our metropolitan cities throughout the country, the bigger concern, which uh, even the March 9th survey from, from MAPI started to uh, show that manufacturers were starting to become more concerned about the demand side for their products in the marketplace than they were about the ability to produce enough. Uh, now, certain, certainly there's uh, manufacturers who have a higher demand at this point. <laughs> Obviously, toilet paper we've seen has been a, a big challenge uh, with, with some of the, the panic buying that occurred early on in the U.S. response. Uh, I think some of that is starting to stabilize at this point. But what we're seeing a real concern about is personal protective equipment. Uh, equipment to, to perform adequate testing so that we can really know the depth and breadth of the the outbreak here in the U.S. And so there are certain manufacturers that are, are still really highly focused on that supply chain. And it's really evident as you look at the specifically the, the components of some of the testing uh, protocols that are needed that a lot of those materials have historically been manufactured in China and specifically out of the Wuhan province. And so we're seeing a real struggle to get some of those supplies into the, into the market because the sourcing for those is, is so limited for testing supplies. 
I think that's something that's not widely known is that uh, the Wuhan Providence is a uh, central um, kind of hub for personal protective equipment. And so uh, you say that now that some of those China um, China factories are starting to come back online, uh, what challenges, though, do they have in uh, the logistics of getting that equipment to uh, to the places that it's needed most? I think one of the things that you saw even back in the, the March 9th survey was an uptick in, in cost for transportation. So the, the shipping mm-hmm. costs are up. Certainly China's ability to, to ramp that production back up. I don't know how much information we're getting that is 100% reliable about that recovery in China. The interesting thing in the survey is that at the time, even back to March 9th, 76% of manufacturing respondents were saying that their capacity was either at capacity or slightly mm-hmm. below normal. So there was experience from from respondents in the survey that was saying that that capacity is coming back online. And that similarly, 76% reported that there was no impact or only a slight decrease in labor availability within their manufacturing operations in China. So that capacity is, is should be coming back online or be back online at this point. But it's a, it's a two-week two week ship sale between here and in China, if you have a large mm-hmm. shipment. So there's there's some concerns about how quickly some of those supplies will be able to be put into the stream. And it's not just the U.S. that's wanting those supplies. They're the supplier for the world. So it, right. it, it's a major impact in how that those supplies get doled out. Who, who's to say? And the, um, the January 28th survey, you mentioned that in the March 9th, uh, China showed that there is almost normal uh, labor availability. The January 28th, uh, do you have the numbers or I guess what was the what was the difference that we saw between those two in uh, labor shortages? You know, the, the MAPI survey didn't talk about that. I, I'm not okay. sure that the January 28th survey was as robust as the March mm. 9th survey. So I don't, I don't have it. that data, but certainly that's a good question how that is changing. And I don't know what MAPI's plans are as far as putting out a new survey, but it would certainly be interesting to see some of these results today and how maybe they might be different if you look at it on a country basis and see, you know, what is the impact with Italy. And so there was, there was some interesting uh, country level information about, about uh, suspension of manufacturing operations related to COVID-19 and China and Italy were the top two. Uh, South Korea had some impact. Even the U.S. as far back as as, uh, March 9th was reporting that there was some suspension of manufacturing operations at that time due to the outbreak. Well, definitely the the issue with supply chains and and labor availability uh, that does lead to the concern about um, what what plans manufacturers would have if their their staff did become infected. So 
at the time of this, the follow-up survey, response planning showed some significant gaps. Um, only 58% of the companies reporting uh, had plans in place, really, to to deal with those that contracted the virus. So uh, I guess let's talk about what some of those precautionary measures that the 58% of businesses did have. Uh, what were some of those? Yeah, I think... We can definitely talk about what some of those were, but I think more interesting may be that that, uh, the 58% that had some kind of plan in place, remember March 9th was pretty early. Exactly. As far as the U.S. response goes, and there was a lot of questions about what what even the virus risks were and the extent of them. And I think some of that may continue to be debated today, which is a little bit concerning uh, that we're this far into it and there's still questions about uh, having any kind of agreement on what the the full-on response should be. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I think even more concerning to me was when I looked at the the NAM survey, which we also reviewed, uh, that survey showed that 50 about 50-50 split between respondents saying that they even had a emergency response plan heading into the crisis. Yeah, you're right. That that is very concerning. Yeah, meaning that they were on the fly developing their response and didn't really have a a predefined script as to what what their next steps and responses were going to be, which I think drives the the 58% response to what are they going to do with their employees that contract the virus. But I think if you look at it today, those companies, everyone has made a response. Everyone has come up with policy to say, if you're sick, no matter what, stay home. If you contract the virus or or even have the symptoms of the virus, because we're, we're so limited in, in ability to get people tested, I'm seeing companies, Weaver being one of them, if you have the symptoms, you're being asked to quarantine for 14 days uh, after you get over the, that illness. Uh, so even if you weren't tested because there's such a risk that uh, you could infect others. Right. Well, I, mean, I think that is an interesting point to to find out how companies, I guess the logistics of being able to pivot to retooling their equipment to make PPE. Uh, Yeah, I think those are all fascinating. There's no historical data because this is kind of unprecedented in in the response that we're taking here. So it's it's interesting to see how that will shift. We've seen some limited uh, stories about on-demand manufacturing in small batches to respond to some of the shortages in materials with uh, some people producing different kinds of valves or connectors using 3D printing. I'm wondering if that will be a more prevalent thing as we move forward to be able to, to address some of the capacity concerns and the ability to, to obtain some of that those materials from overseas just due to the shortage as well as the, the constraints on supply chain. So. It's an interesting prospect, and I'm wondering if this pandemic crisis situation will sort of start to 
help to shift the the push to more real time localized manufacturing because it is a something that's on the horizon and start and gets cheaper every day. Is that something that uh, that Weaver is seeing from from its clients um, this this shift to at least small batch, you know, creating materials in I guess in advance of maybe retooling their equipment. I think that that's a big shift, and, and probably not an existing manufacturer that's going to shift to that. But I do think that there are some leading 3D printing manufacturers that are sort of leading the, the thought process on what manufacturing is going to look like in the future, developing pathways to make that type of manufacturing more cost-effective for a broader range of, of products. It's been mm-hmm. shown to be a, a limited feasibility study in a few cases from what I've read where 3D printing or that type of manufacturing, additive manufacturing has a financial use case based on the type of products being produced. So let's talk about some of the precautionary measures that uh, businesses are taking. You know, we talked about the fact that uh, maybe half of the businesses surveyed on March 9th had plans in place, but now that we are at the end of March, uh, we're obviously seeing 100% of businesses affected by this. And so they have created plans and and are taking precautionary measures. What are some of those uh, measures that are being taken? Uh, and and I guess, can you speak to the the importance for um, for a diligent view of each of those to to make sure that that every precaution is being taken. I think that every business right now is concerned about cash flow. Cash is king. How are you going to keep cash flowing to be able to support your operations and employees uh, during this pretty significant downturn? And I think Curtis has quite a bit of points to make around some of the things that the government is doing to help ease that delay some payments. So Curtis, you want to talk about some of the, the tax considerations? Sure. Yeah. So on the, you know, from the tax standpoint, obviously it is, you know, cash is king, you know, and when thinking about what they can do to defer payments, get funding, you know, whether it's payroll tax credits, payroll tax offsets, payroll tax deferrals, or even with the IRS and Treasury coming out and you know, delaying the April 15th tax deadline an additional 90 days, including tax payments. So that's, that's been huge. And then, you know, the mechanics of what this looks like. So much is being pushed, you know, out so quickly with these relief efforts and the stimulus that clients want to know what they can do to take advantage of it, whether it's carrying back losses to prior years to get, you know, free up profits prior to 2019 or, or years prior to that. And then just how they go about filing and getting access to these funds or even the short, short-term funding along the lines of whatever loan program that they may push out, whether it's small business or large business. They just want to know what they need to do and what access to funds they can have, even if it's just to cover monthly costs like payroll, rent, and utilities. What advice then are you giving them? Well, first off, we have a great 
resilience and recovery page out there on our website. So we have a great thought leadership website. I'm suggesting they look at that and look at it daily because we're constantly updating it. And we're reaching out to payroll providers. We're having a lot of conversations internally with the partner group on what they expect this to look like. As soon as we get clarity, the IRS came out with some frequently asked questions and answers, I think yesterday or the day before. So we're just trying to be really proactive with getting this information in front of our clients so they can make the appropriate decisions as far as paying employees while they're gone, what they have to do, whether it's full pay, two-third pay, how that interacts with the programs they already have in place. So we're just, at the end of the day, trying to keep constant communication. And we know they're focused on trying to run their business, keep their business alive. So we want to try and you know, give them some sort of reprieve and certainly assistance from the, the tax and financial impacts outside of everything else they have going on. One thing that I wanted to make sure that we spend a little bit of time talking about is near and dear to my heart is that in providing outsourced internal audit services, uh, we have seen a benefit for our clients that, that do lean upon outsourcing in that area, have been able to ramp up and down pretty quickly as we've rolled into the first part of this year to be able to scale back the amount of effort that's being done or to reposition our internal audit efforts to something that may be more impactful has been easier for them uh, than some of the companies that have internal in-house internal audit departments and are looking at how they're going to keep those people busy uh, during this sort of shutdown period. So I think that that's a really important lesson learned for a market that looks increasingly looking forward to be uncertain that we can have some ability to scale up and down quickly with, through an outsourced model for that internal audit function. And as you look forward, some of the information we're seeing about potential recurrence uh, of the, the COVID-19 uh, infection, even if we clear this period in, here in the spring, what does the next winter look like? Is there increasing uncertainty that's caused by, by something like this? Hopefully that's not the case that we're living with, uh, but there has been some evidence that that's the case. And being able to scale up and down is is continuously more important as more things uh, seem to be impacting our our business. And something almost every year seems to be happening that that sort of impacts our ability to conduct business and, and be certain about our future. Can you speak to some of the concerns that um, that your clients are, are really expressing? I mean, you know, without naming any names, like, I guess, you know, do you have any um, anecdotal stories that, that um, of types of questions that you're getting and I guess the, the concern that's out there? Sure. So as far as concerns go, I mean, the first one, obviously, employee health and safety, that's number one, but that goes without saying, you know, but also making sure they're following the state and local guidance. So a couple questions have come out on that, but I think for the most part, that's fairly well understood. The next concern is just cash flow with operations being severely limited or in some cases not running at all for those non-essential businesses. They're worried about cash and that's when it comes into the tax credits, the tax payment deferrals. A ton of my clients, we've been having conversations of, hey, 
we know we have a big tax payment due April 15th for your 2019 tax year. Let's push that off until July. You have the cash to do it now, but who knows what the next month, two, three, six months looks like. So really deferring cash payments and making sure they are going to be able to weather the storm. And then it also goes along with paying the employees they have. You know, a lot of them, people have those shelter in place orders. And if it is a non-essential business, manufacturing operations may not be operating at all. So that's, that's important. And then beyond that too, just they want to know what the programs look like that are going to give them access to capital in the short term. And we know that that hasn't been determined yet. So they are just eager to find out what they can do to get access to cash. And, you know, beyond everything that's coming out on the federal side and the stimulus packages, a lot of my manufacturers have operations throughout the, throughout the U.S. and many states. So they also want to know on a, on a state-by-state level what that looks like for them. So a lot of questions on just the mechanics of, of what this looks like what the relief is to them, both you know, at the federal level and then also at the state level. And Jody, how about you? What are the concerns that you're hearing uh, from clients and, and uh, what, uh, what kind of advice are you giving them? Well, as Curtis said, everything revolves around, around the, the cash to survive the storm, and, which means that companies are going to be slowing down their payments to their vendors. So we're advising our, our customers to pay attention to collections as well as, as trying to collect on, on any outstanding receivables to maximize their cash while their customers have it, uh, as well as looking at their, their bank financing situation, making sure that they have uh, maximized their access to capital today uh, anticipating a potential shortfall in credit availability if this situation gets worse. Uh, we've seen a number of the larger uh, public companies max out their credit lines leading into uh, the end of the first quarter here, uh, mm-hmm. anticipating that this crisis is going to continue into into the second quarter of, of 2020 and which looks to be a, a highly likely scenario. And so I, I think that smart planning now around your financial uh, credit capital access is really important uh, as well as taking a, a maybe a tough look at where your uh, employee count is and what you can sustain, establishing what your your cash flow scenario looks like under a lot of different uh, looks at it so that you can uh, game plan uh, for today for potential scenarios down the road, make adequate uh, planning based on known information today, continue to refine those plans, and really be prepared to make some hard decisions, uh, which hopefully no one has to do or experience the end of. Uh, but I do think that we've seen what today, 3.3 million people applying for uh, for making jobless claims this week, uh, mm-hmm. at the end of last week, those numbers came out today. 
so which is record un unemployment uh, reporting for any one cycle ever, uh, which there's a lot of people that are going to be hurting. The, the government is working on some aid packages for both businesses as well as individuals to try to get through this. What I'm curious is what, Curtis, have you heard from your clients about the the leave packages that, that were put out for employers of 500 employees or less and how that's impacting some of those employers and whether the payroll tax considerations that were given are going to be enough to, to cover some of that, that leave uh, costs that those people are going to have to cover. Yeah, we've had a lot of conversations with those less than 500 employees. You know, the first question is, how does this even really work? You know, do we, does that, do we incorporate our current leave with the 80 hours we give them? Which employee falls under this medical leave versus this sick leave and, and what that looks like if they're the one that's actually sick or if they're caring for someone that's sick? And then how quickly, if they continue to pay these employees, can they get these payroll tax credit offsets or, you know, abatements potentially? And how much of that is refundable? So, those conversations have largely been geared around the mechanics of what that looks like. The rules can be a little confusing initially, but if you dig deep into what they have going on at that employer level and the guidance that's come out, especially with the Coronavirus Response Act, the Families First Act, some of that is pretty clear to them on which employee falls, falls where, but then just trying to incorporate that into, well, for one, if they continue to you know, pay that employee throughout the, you know, after that time period, what that looks like. So they're trying to think about in the short term, adhering to these new leave rules. And then in the longer term, what, you know, credits and abatements would be available to them if they keep paying these employees while they're no longer there, or whether that's just a, a furlough for a time period. So we've had a lot of conversations around it, a little bit of frustration on some of their questions we don't have answers yet for, but there's certainly been a lot of clients reaching out uh, with the payroll tax questions and what they should be doing and what they can be doing. Can you speak to uh, quickly the Families First uh, Corona Response Act, just a, a kind of a, a rundown of what that entails and what the tax implications are? So the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, which Trump signed, into law, I believe it was March 18th, you know, include paid leave benefits to employees, which includes sick leave, family and medical leave, you know, extended some of those provisions, provided full pay capped at, you know, certain amounts for full-time employees, and there were some two-thirds pay or minimum wage amounts for other employees as well. So it really tried to expand on some of the provisions that were currently there and make it much more beneficial for employees. It also provided tax credits for employers and self-employed taxpayers. And there's also some additional FICA tax credits for employees. And the payroll tax impact was huge. And that's where we've had a, a lot of questions from clients on and still need some clarity from the, the Treasury and the IRS. But one of the, also the bigger items on that was the, the relief for taxpayers with a April 15th tax payment due. This is 
much easier to understand, right? If you owe something on April 15th, certainly on the income tax side, you have an extra mm -hmm. 90 days to, to file your taxes or you can still file and defer payment for 90 days. So a lot of our uh, a lot of our clients were really happy to hear that they had extra 90 days, even though maybe they have the cash currently because of the uncertainty, deferring for an extra 90 days was huge. And they were happy to hear that. It created a lot of questions and the IRS came out with some FAQs to address some of those because it was for income taxes. So taxes beyond that, whether it's payroll or you know some state and local taxes, what that then looks like and if there's going to be some you know, delays on that side. So a lot of questions on things beyond the income tax impact because that's easily understood. And a lot of the states are coming out and issuing additional guidance and our state and local team is working really hard daily to let us know what that looks like so then we can be in touch with our clients and contacts on how that impacts them on the state and local side because the application of those rules at the state and local level certainly can be much harder to comprehend. Though the liabilities are likely much smaller as well, they still want to know what they can do at the state and local level. But largely at the federal level, they've been very excited to hear that they get an extra 90 days, potentially more depending on what happens here in the near, near future on making those tax payments. Well, certainly there's a lot of moving pieces that are still, you know, happening, still developing. And so uh, being able to keep up off with everything that's, that's changing is, uh, is certainly a feat in itself. Um, how can and clients and potential clients um, reach out to be able to, to get some of their questions answered? You, you can certainly submit them through our website, but, you know, my current clients, I'm encouraging them to reach out to me and, you know, any of the, the staff on their account. We want to be in constant touch with them as they have specific questions. We're trying to be proactive in sharing, but there's a lot of changes coming through quickly. We're dealing with a lot. So I, I encourage them if they have questions to reach out directly to us, you know, potential clients, of course, me and any of the other tax partners. We want to help where we can. So we're encouraging them to reach out. Of course, like I said, you can do so on the website, but the direct reach out is probably a little better. You can follow us on Twitter, I'm at J-R-A Weaver L-L-P, and on LinkedIn, at Jody Allred, and I think Curtis has some follow information as well. And you can also, of course, you know, email our website is great. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, at Curtis Dixon. I'm not, not on Twitter, but I certainly will respond to you on LinkedIn and otherwise. Well, Jody Curtis, I really want to thank you guys for joining us. Uh, there's a lot of information here and a lot of action that needs to be taken. And so I think uh, being able to have a resource like this and your insights are certainly helpful. So thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Shelby. It's uh, nice to be here with you. Not such a great subject matter. Uh, one of the things that, that we wanted to make sure we get across to some of the things that Weaver has available to, to clients as well as, as others just in the, in the marketplace. Uh, Curtis mentioned our resiliency and recovery resource center at weaver.com for real-time updates on, on tax, supply chain, remote work, 
and workforce planning tools uh, and information. Well, you said it that it's uh, not the the lightest of topic, but um, I think kind of the the important takeaway besides all of the technical information and information that uh, that companies can implement immediately. Uh, I, I think the message that you know we're all in this together. We're literally all in the same boat trying to navigate this very uncharted water. And so um, we appreciate your guidance. And um, again, thank you so much, guys, for joining me. Thanks, Shelby. Thank you, Shelby. If you like today's podcast and would like to tune in for more insights on financial and business trends, regulations, best practices, and issues that keep CFOs, CEOs, and other professionals up at night, Subscribe to Weaver Beyond the Numbers on Apple or Spotify. Weaver, accounting for more than numbers. Until next time, I'm Shelby Skirhawk.